Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, Season 1, Episode 19. Previously on The Witch Who Came In From The Cold. Desperate for anything that might shed light on his affliction, Gabe tracked down the fabled Golem of Prague. But proximity to the hitchhiker energized the centuries-old construct, which quickly killed a police officer. Jordan finally explained what had happened to him in Cairo two years previously. Meanwhile, Tanya followed Gabe's lead to investigate a barge on the Voltava River, where she found ice was keeping people in a magically induced stasis, including young student Andula Zlata, the host she thought she'd saved. That same night, Sasha broke into her apartment and found her grandfather's construct. He took the enchanted radio for her protection. Sasha was briefly replaced by one General Bikovsky, a dangerous fool who quickly made a mess of the KGB's operations in Prague. But Tanya made a special arrangement with a local hanger-on named Magnus Hawkinson, a.k.a. the Norwegian, to have Bikovsky disgraced and removed. Another hanger-on lately taking up space at Bar Vodnar is Arnie Litton, a former spy hovering around the edges of the Prague scene and hungry for a taste of his old life. 1. Czechoslovak Socialist Republic February 17, 1970 It was a ramshackle little place, part stone and part timber, with moss growing between the shingles and bird-bone wind chimes swaying from the eaves. Fifty meters from the nearest road, the cottage hid within a stand of pines in an isolated valley forty kilometers outside of town. The roof had a pronounced sag, like a sway-backed horse. A lonely goat chewed cud inside a pen that looked unlikely to withstand the next strong breeze. The wind smelled of pine resin and goat shit. Finding this place had taken all morning, half a tank of gas, and three stops for directions. Gabriel Pritchard couldn't afford the time, and he couldn't afford to leave a trail of people who might remember a man with a strong American accent. But nor could he keep living with a disembodied spirit lodged in his soul like a couch stuck in a doorway. 
So here he was, hoping like hell he hadn't been played for a fool. He'd come on the advice of a KGB officer whom, quite frankly, he had no compelling reason to trust. Jesus, they didn't even like each other. If he died out here, it might be days or weeks before the CIA found his body, if they ever did. Perhaps he'd die in an ambush today, or be captured. Or perhaps the end would come when the hitchhiker finally burst his skull like an overripe melon. Fools rush in, he reminded himself. But he knocked anyway. From within, he heard quiet voices and the squeak of a chair, slow footsteps on creaking floorboards. A woman old enough to be Gabe's grandmother opened the door. Behind her, bundles of dried flowers and herbs, dozens of them, hung from the rafters. A very large man, bald and meaty, ate black bread at the kitchen table. Too young for a husband or brother. Her son? Grandson? Tanya had given Gabe an address, referring to a woman who might be able to help. He knew immediately what this place was and whom he'd come to meet. He didn't know the Czech term, but in Latin America, they'd call her a curandera. The old woman was a hedge witch, a cut wife. This was the ragged fringe of the USSR, where local superstitions hadn't been bulldozed by socialist realism. Here, the cut wife solved human problems beyond the purview of Marxism-Leninism. She lived on the outskirts of town because people feared her, maybe even reviled her at times, but they always stopped short of driving her away. Where else could they buy good luck charms and love potions, have their fortunes divined, or their most delicate problems solved with discretion? For her part, she'd likely been expecting to find a girl on the doorstep, somebody from one of the surrounding farms. Gabe could picture it now in his mind's eye, a freckled milkmaid. He gave her pippy longstocking braids, because why not? Who naively spent some unchaperoned time in a hayloft with a charming boy, and now found herself in just a little bit of trouble. Such was a cut wife's clientele. Certainly she had not expected to find a man in his mid-thirties on the doorstep, and an American at that. They stared at each other for a long, awkward beat. To her credit, she didn't slam the door. She looked him up and down, as if assessing a horse or cow for purchase. He wondered if she'd want to check his teeth, too. Then she narrowed her eyes, and, just for a split second, the hitchhiker stirred. Damn, she was good. That's when she made to slam the door. Gabe was faster. He caught the door with his toe. She yelped in protest. The large fellow set down his bread, tugged at the napkin in his collar, and dabbed the buttery crumbs from his lips. Then he pushed his chair away from the kitchen table and stood. He tilted his head far to the left, set his hands on his jaw and scalp, and gave a little tug, cracking the joints in his neck. Then he tilted his head the other way and did it again. It was quite a show. All very deliberate, probably to give unwise visitors time to rethink just how badly they needed to overstay their welcome. 
performance completed, he approached the door. His hands curled into fists, undoubtedly anticipating a short, intense conversation with Gabe's face. Gin blossoms pinked the man's nose and cheeks. She's not aligned with either the ice or the flame, and she's got a drinking problem, Tanya had said. So she's always in need of money. Gabe carried a rucksack slung over one shoulder, and he hefted this now. Glass clinked. The old woman cocked an eyebrow. Slivovitz, Gabe said. She licked her lips. He pulled open the rucksack, just enough to show her the bottles. Cocking her head ever so slightly, she said over her shoulder, All is well. Baby Huey shrugged, turned, and lumbered back to the kitchen table. With the same deliberation with which he had prepared to show Gabe the error of his ways, he sat down, tucked the napkin back in his collar, and spread another spoonful of butter across his bread. The woman reached for the sack. Gabe handed it over. The witch retreated a few steps, opening the door more widely. He entered. The hitchhiker stirred again. It tweaked his senses. The cottage smelled of freshly baked bread, garlic, thyme, incense, sweat, lavender, and half a dozen additional wildflowers and herbs he couldn't parse. The air within tasted of ash and tickled his tongue with the metallic tang of blood. She'd butchered a chicken sometime in the past few days. His host pointed to a chair beside the hearth. Gabe took a seat while she stowed the booze in a cabinet. He could imagine the expense report now. Ninety coronas, plum brandy, six bottles, top shelf, for bribing the local hedge witch. Baby Huey finished his meal and went outside. Soon the noises of wood chopping filtered into the cottage. The old woman stoked the fire, washed her hands in an aluminum basin, then dragged the only other chair before Gabe. She sat facing him. You have a ghost in you, she said. Brizrak, ghost, phantom, wraith, specter. Yes. She took his hands, spat in his palms, slapped them together, and stared unblinking into his eyes. How long? A year and a half. That long? But you're not dead. She pulled his hands apart and studied the pattern of spittle. Again, the hitchhiker stirred. She shook her head and dropped his hands as though they were hot coals. He wiped them on his trousers. It is in you too deep. I cannot help. He sagged in his chair. Damn. Coming out here had been a move of desperation. Thanks to Alistair and Jordan, he now understood the magical nature of his affliction. He'd even learned to mitigate it, to a limited extent. But detente wasn't enough. He wanted a cure. He wanted his old life back, his old self. Time for plan B, if his check was up to the task. Jordan had speculated that the hitchhiker was an errant elemental spirit. If that was true, then it had to have an affinity for a particular alchemical element. If Gabe could at least identify that, he'd have a strong lever for prying the damn thing out of himself once and for all. 
If you can't remove it, he said, can you at least tell me its name? Nazif. Name. Title. Her blank expression sent him rummaging his mental filing cabinet for any useful scrap of vocabulary. It's nature, temperament, povaha. You seek the druha? He didn't know that word. She answered his shrug in English. Species. Gabe nodded. She narrowed her eyes. He got the sense he'd lifted her opinion of him just the tiniest bit. Enough to help? That is very difficult, she said. He pointed to the cabinet. Too difficult for six bottles? This time, he couldn't read her expression. But she did open a different cabinet, from which she retrieved a yellowed sheaf of papers. An herbal pharmacopoeia, he realized. Such lore was the lens through which she saw the magical undercurrents of the world. Undercurrents that were fundamentally elemental in nature, according to Alistair, for values of element more Mendelavian than Aristotelian. When she flipped through the pages, he glimpsed astrological and alchemical symbols mingled with artful sketches of what he assumed to be local flora. He knew from his own research that certain plants bioaccumulated particular metals or minerals from the environment. It made a certain kind of sense, then, that a hedgewitch or MI6 sorcerer might make use of their ashes. She used a mortar and pestle to hold the sheaf open to a long table of symbols, a list of elements and elementals written in several different hands in a hodgepodge of languages. Mostly Czech, of course, but he recognized bits and pieces of Latin, and even some English, as in the phrase, star regulus of antimony, whatever that meant. They could dispense with three of the classic elements, earth, air, water, right away. He walked on the earth and breathed air literally all day and night, and his body was mostly water. If the hitchhiker were ravenous for any of these things, it would have torn him inside out long ago. Of the big four, that left fire. The witch nicked his thumb with a knife, smeared the blood on the long stem of a dried nettle, and wrapped this around a candle. She lit the wick and pointed. Gabe stuck his hand in the flame and yelped. But the hitchhiker didn't stir. Gabe licked a fresh blister while she crossed off, Ohenye. The process became more involved as the elements became more obscure. Though Alistair's exercises had proven useless at evicting the hitchhiker, Gabe had to give the old spy credit. Without the benefit of the Brit's tutelage, Gabe would have been utterly incapable of following what she was doing. Sometimes she'd roll back his shirt cuff, then jab his arm with a long needle. A songbird beak clamped around a fossilized worm dangled from the eye of an almost invisible thread. Then, before the bleeding stopped, she'd press something to the tiny pinprick. It occurred to Gabe that he was undergoing something akin to magical allergy testing. And so it went all afternoon. Until they got to Mercury. For this, she opened the window and slipped a thermometer from its bracket. Did he feel a little twitch just then? As though the hitchhiker had just rolled over in its sleep? If so, it was subtle, 
something he wouldn't have noticed prior to working with Alistair. Encouraging, though. She took a chipped saucer from the cupboard. After working the thermometer free of its frame, she used the blooded knife to etch the glass. Then she snapped the thermometer in two and poured the contents into the dish. The bead of hydrogerum, water silver, was smaller than the nail on his pinky finger. He waved his hand over the dish. Nothing happened. The hedge witch darted forward with the knife. He sighed, but knowing the drill by now, he let her take more blood. Chanting, she flicked a crimson drop into the dish and then swirled it around until the liquids mingled. Then she gestured at him. He waved his hand over the dish again. The blooded mercury sprouted tentacles like a tiny sea anemone and reached for his fingers. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. Click. The voltmeter needle swung hard to the right. It quivered like a hunting dog catching the scent of hair on the wind. Sasha dialed down the gain before the overtorqued coil shorted out. The bakelite knob clunked twice. The needle relaxed, swaying until, like a tipsy sailor, it found an equilibrium that wasn't quite vertical. He sniffed. A melange of hot metal and burnt lamination wafted from the meter. Or was that coming from the radio? He sniffed again. No, definitely the meter. It was warm to the touch. The voltmeter would have sacrificed itself if so ordered. Its needle was slim as the line between sedition and loyalty, truth and falsehood, east and west. If only he had such a tool for probing the minds and hearts of those around him. A little red needle to tell him who was good, who was bad, who was loyal, who was not, who could be controlled, who could not. Alas. He set the tool aside, taking care not to nudge the chessboards arrayed on his desk. One game was barely out of the opening, with Sasha playing a lovely king's gambit favored by the great Spassky, while the other showed Sasha's black pieces held a slight but winning positional advantage, unless his opponent was crafty enough to force a bishop's of opposite colors endgame. He turned his attention back to the radio he'd confiscated from Tatiana Morozova's flat. Right now, it was plugged into the mains under his desk, its back cover laid carefully on the desk, a screwdriver and four screws sitting queenward of a forlorn king's bishop. It had taken some concentration to glean a sense of its operation. Sasha's time as a radio operator in the Red Army predated transistors. He missed the triode's cozy golden glow. The old tubes were superior in so many ways. One could often see a malfunction with the naked eye, a blackened grid, a broken filament. And he'd coaxed more than one broken radio back into operation just by giving it a solid whack. Transistors were too tiny. How could you whack something you couldn't see? But the voltmeter confirmed that the circuitry worked as he expected. He'd found nothing unusual about the device. No hidden antenna, no hidden modifications for receiving shortwave broadcasts. He'd managed to summon a voice from it earlier, but could not seem able to replicate it. That was both a relief and a disappointment. 
How much stronger his hold over dear Tanya would be if he had found something truly incriminating, such as the ability to receive Western number stations. Had there been the slightest possibility that she received coded messages from a handler in the West? Well, that would have paid dividends for a long, long time. No matter, he'd keep working on her. What was the next move? He envisioned several lines. The tactical approach. He could confront her directly, dropping the avuncular tone he'd adopted in her flat. But that lacked finesse. Better still, a Juizenschug. He could arrange the partially disassembled radio on display behind his desk and then conveniently forget about it before calling her into his office. Her roving eyes would get a good glimpse and Sasha could watch her reaction. Or the strategic development. He could hold back, keep his power pieces in reserve, and slowly draw Tanya out. On balance, he preferred the strategic approach. But he'd keep the equilibrium threatening in-between move, the Zuizenschug, tucked in his back pocket. For now then, he'd leave the radio intact and locked in his desk. His army training came to the fore again, prompting him to unplug the radio before reattaching the case. It seemed well-grounded, but one could never be too careful. He waited for the faint hum of energized circuitry to fade, and waited, and waited. It took much longer than he'd expected. Transistors were supposed to be faster than vacuum tubes, weren't they? Perhaps he was a little rusty. He sighed, shook his head, then lifted the cover. But as he flipped it over to ease it into place, Something glinted under the fluorescent lighting. He set the cover down again and rummaged in his desk for a magnifying glass, a most useful tool. One could never examine photographs too carefully, even when they came straight from the Kremlin. More than one Politburo member had fallen to an airbrush rather than a bullet. It took a few minutes of tilting the metal plate back and forth, long enough to start wondering if he'd imagined it, before he saw it again, the faint shimmer of mica flakes. A smear of dirt? The radio had given off the unmistakable odor of singed dust when he'd turned it on, again, like the old tube radios. But no, this wasn't random. The mineral had been laid down deliberately, painted in lines barely the thickness of a piece of cardstock. Now that he knew what to look for, he saw the ghostly shimmer ranged all over the radio's innards. Somebody had painstakingly inscribed the radio with a nigh-invisible circuit diagram of inert minerals. They couldn't have used a full brush. It must have taken just a single bristle to create such fine lines. This was extremely careful work. Sasha set the radio down again, smiling. A classic move, and a personal favorite. The Discovered Check. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at 
hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. CIA Prague Station blew a collective sigh of relief. It was a restrained relaxation, though, not Apollo 11 crazy. That had been like a Christmas party in July, with an open bar and very good booze with more than a few valiant souls blitzed out of their minds and perhaps just a bit of clumsy screwing in the broom closets. Nevertheless, the lightened mood hit Gabe the moment he entered the office. He didn't need the hitchhiker redlining his senses to detect an emotional sea change. Even Frank cracked a smile. Gabe marked the day on his calendar. Over by the coffee maker, Dominic flirted with Junie from the secretarial pool, who laughed girlishly at something he said. The entire office had warmed to Dom. Even a bullish jingoist could be a breath of fresh air in the tail end of a long winter behind the Iron Curtain. They'd survived the inspection. The auditors had been most worried about big-picture stuff. Newspaper headline, Congressional Investigatory Committee stuff. By that standard, Prague Station was clean as a nun's knickers. It wasn't as though they'd doped somebody to the gills until he leapt from a hotel balcony or dosed an entire French village with ergotism. It wasn't the 1950s any longer, for Christ's sakes. All Gabe had to hide was accidentally resurrecting a centuries-old golem, plus the fact that it had murdered a policeman. Small potatoes. Even Josh had weathered the storm. The inspectors had blown through without churning up details of his personal life. That was largely due to Frank. It would be good to raise this delicate point with the kid. This wasn't the time, though. At the moment, the kid sat at his desk looking pensive. He leaned with one elbow on the blotter, head resting against his fist, the other hand desultorily piling paperclips. 
It got to you, didn't it? You've glimpsed the glamorous life of the bean counter, and now you're ruined for anything else, Gabe said. Don't deny you were just daydreaming about paperclip audits. I've never seen you this chipper, Josh squinted. Are you on uppers? Gabe imagined this was indeed how a stomach full of bennies might feel. His visit to the hedge witch had lifted a burden he'd carried for so long that he'd forgotten what it was like to stand straight without a crushing yoke bending his back. Knowledge was power, and this knowledge would give him the power to evict the hitchhiker once and for all. It made him giddy. But he couldn't explain this to Josh. Can't a guy just be in a good mood for a change? Josh shrugged. Well, technically we're on U.S. soil, and it is a free country. But give me some time to get used to the new Gabriel Pritchard. I'm accustomed to the moody bastard who likes to throw up on the local constabulary. Gabe would never live that one down. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. He leaned over Josh and mimed sticking a finger down his throat. Their laughter drew a few curious glances in their direction. Okay, okay, truce, said Josh. Gabe grabbed an extra chair. So, what's up? Drahomir, is he just naturally stiff? Ah, uh, I know you're eager to move things along, but you've got to have patience, okay? You've only been at this a few weeks. Remember, you're playing a long game here. A long game. Don't think in terms of months. Think in terms of years. Careers. I get that. Honestly, I do. But our interaction is a bit chilly. He trusts you. He tolerates me. Josh shrugged. How do I build on such a brittle foundation? Gabe leaned against the desk. Open up to him a little bit. Make him feel like he's getting something personal from you. You want him to feel like it's a two-way street. Such as? Drahomir loves the symphony. Just mention in passing some concert you attended back in the States. Doesn't matter if it was Beethoven or Three Dog Night. The point isn't to have a conversation about music. Even if he doesn't take the opening, you've given him a point of connection. He'll remember you attend live music. And that's grist for the mill. Josh mulled this over. Nodded. Simple. I like it. Later, Gabe found himself departing the embassy just as Alistair entered, shaking his umbrella. The Brit favored him with a genial nod. Good morning, Gabriel. Hi, Al. He was two steps out of the door before his thoughts boomeranged back to their shared misadventure in the new Jewish cemetery. He turned and jogged back inside. Hey, Al, tell me something. Is that flask of yours a family heirloom or did you pick it up locally? He lowered his voice. And did you simply dip it in the river or did you have to do something special? Tonight, as with the past several nights, the clientele at Bar Vodnar leaned to the west. Ever since the Soviet general Bukowski had gotten himself photographed on the doorstep practically holding hands with the Norwegian, traffic from the vodka crowd had been light. That didn't mean it was uneventful, though. Gabe staggered in around 11. He scanned the room with bloodshot eyes, 
looking like the very last thing in the world he needed was a drink. He clutched a handkerchief mottled with rusty stains, Jordan noticed, and kept dabbing it under his nose. But he put on a game face and ventured across the room, sending swirls of cigarette smoke eddying around his head. His legs were wobbly as a newborn foal's, and he stumbled against a table, spilling the drinks of the couple sitting there. After tossing a handful of coins and cash on the table by way of apology, he lurched onward and finally slumped against the bar. Jordan did a double take. His eyes weren't merely bloodshot. The whites were genuinely red. He'd burst a vessel in each eye. Somebody had worked him over, but good. No bruises or swelling, though. That was strange. She studied him more closely. His nose wasn't broken, though it had bled, as had both ears. A thin scarlet crust traced the contour of each earlobe to the hinge of his jaw, and tiny scabs dotted the corners of his eyes like sleep crumbs. Jordan hastily moved to conclude her current transaction before he scared away one of her special customers, and because her extended clientele was none of his business. Fingers lightly brushing her bracelet, she said to the woman across the bar, All right, I'll let you have it for twenty, but only because you're a regular and I like you. Money changed hands, and so did a sun-bleached piece of the Atacama Desert. The woman on the neighboring stool took one look at Gabe, picked up her drink and her new charm, and moved to a booth. Jordan gave his bloody rag a nasty frown. He stuffed it in his pocket. Foregoing anything even remotely resembling a preamble, he said, You were right. Of course I was. She stuffed the folded coronas into her pocket, then wrenched the cap from a beer bottle and slid it to another patron. About what? Gabe tapped his temple with a quivering finger. Okay, I'll bite. What makes you say that? Though he looked ready to keel over at any moment, his eyes widened and his entire manner brightened. His hoarse voice crackled with excitement. He leaned closer. I've identified it. I know its affinity. She blinked. You don't say. He nodded. I'm feeling very mercurial right now. That sank in. You're certain? Oh, yeah. The high-pitched thread of a madman's desperation wove through his laughter. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm impressed. That must have taken some smart detective work. She looked him over again, frowned. So I assume this means you immediately followed it up by doing something dumb. He tried to look innocent, but having clearly spent the earlier part of the evening bleeding from every orifice, he wasn't selling the schoolboy act particularly well. You did, didn't you? Of course not. His hand shook. She could tell he was trying his best to hide it. But on an unrelated note, he said, I will mention in passing that if you're in the market for a new thermometer or barometer, you're probably out of luck for a while. I happen to know that every place in town is out of stock. You can't get one for love or money. Pritchard, sometimes I swear. She clenched her eyes shut and pinched the bridge of her nose, 
as though fending off the first tendrils of a nasty sinus headache. Which, in fact, she was. She wondered what the symptoms of acute mercury poisoning might be, and whether she'd have to cleanse the bar after he left. Was it her imagination, or was there a greenish tinge to his pallor tonight? Do I need to call an ambulance for you? I'm fine, honestly. That's a relief, because you look like five miles of bad road. She reached under the bar and set a shot glass on the table. Then she turned, plucked a bottle from the top shelf, and filled the glass with some of the most expensive booze she had on hand. Anyway, this calls for a celebration. On the house, she announced. He cocked an eyebrow at her. Really? Look, if you don't want it, very generous of you, much obliged. He laid his hand beside the glass, but didn't lift it to his lips. Drink up, cowboy, before I regret my good cheer. He tried. He'd raised the glass about two inches before his fluttering hand slopped the fine Kentucky bourbon all over the bar. Jordan snatched the glass from his hand and tossed back what little remained. That's what I thought. You did something stupid tonight, and it left you so jacked up you can barely lift a shot glass. He frowned. Dirty pool, Reims. Out with it, what did you do? I tried to evict it. All that blood. Did you try to cut it out? Of course not. I thought drawing it out would be easy. Seemed like it should be, uh, straightforward. She pinched the bridge of her nose again. This headache wasn't going anywhere. I know you don't remember how it got there in the first place, Pritchard, but you can take my word for it. And maybe you'll notice I don't use words like easy and straightforward. She sighed. So what happened? Before or after two ounces of liquid metal tried to climb up my nose? Jordan leaned to left and right, squinting at the sides of his head. Your nose? And my ears, my eyes? He trailed off, shifting uncomfortably on the stool. Other places? He murmured. Forget cleansing, Vodnar. She'd have to burn it down. Oh my God, Pritchard. I swear, if you start shitting blood in my bar, I truly will murder you. He swayed. For a moment, she thought he was going down, but he grabbed the brass rail at the last second and righted himself. How would you get rid of it then? I don't know, she admitted. Let me make a call. Alistair arrived just before closing. He hung his umbrella on the bar, doffed his hat to Jordan. Miss Reams, enchanting as ever, my dear. And glanced at Gabe. Good heavens, lad. Jordan poured him a brandy while Gabe filled him in. She kept a hand on her bracelet in case the late-night patrons tried to listen. Gabe concluded, So, knowing the hitchhiker's identity, can you help me get rid of it? I have an inkling. Alistair shared a look with Jordan. The Brit frowned just a bit, calculating. What was he up to? But I'm uncertain that it would be best for us to help you. Oh, come on, Al. I obviously can't do it myself. 
You've demonstrated that with admirable clarity. I mean, have you considered appealing to Miss Morozova for assistance? Gabe groaned. He slumped over the brass rail and pressed his forehead to the polished wood. Jordan snatched a dish rag and tried to remember where she'd put the bleach. I know what you're doing, he said, his voice muffled. Have you forgotten she's KGB? She might as well be radioactive. Then he sighed. Do you think she can help? I do. But are you certain you've given this due consideration? Yours is a unique situation. Don't be hasty. Alistair finished his brandy. Haste makes waste. Gabe hopped from the barstool on wobbly fawn legs. Go jump in a frozen river. Both of you. You're listening to The Witch Who Came In From The Cold. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Witch Who Came In From The Cold is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Lindsay Smith, Cassandra Rose Clark, Ian Tregellis, and Michael Swanwick. Performed by Christine Lakin and John Glushevich. Directed by Dennis Keo. Produced by Julian Yap and Marco Palmieri. Associate Producers Corey Barton and Devin Shepard. Executive Produced by Molly Barton. Audio Production by Literati Audio. Audio Editing by Evan Arnett and Fred Koch. Mixing and Mastering by Jeremy Wesley. Original music by Katherine Anderson. Find more shows like this on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.